Okay, who's ready for preaching? I know I am. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. We're in the sixth Sunday uh, of the Epiphany season. And I do love this season because uh, its focus is about these revelatory moments with Jesus where he reveals who he is and invites us to sort of consider what that means for us and to follow him. And today uh, we really get one of the first uh, teachings of Jesus that we hear this year and um, really excited about this text. So it starts in verse 17. Uh, I'll read it, pray, and then we'll uh, walk through it together. Uh, Verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and uh, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. It feels like Lord of the Rings now, doesn't it? Um, Who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry uh, hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. On account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did. To the false prophets. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and uh, thank you that we're all here safely. Uh, be with us in the next few moments as we uh, reflect on these things. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. So there's two things that I do from time to time that when I do them, uh, it, it brings on a real sense of shame. And so maybe you can relate to these. The first is uh, when I drive through McDonald's. Um, during a non-eating time of the day. (laughs) Are you with me on that? You're just sitting in traffic and you're like, I could go for a 20-pack, you know? (laughs) Sweet and sour. The empty box of shame, you know, on the seat. So there's that one. And the second one is when I end up reading one of those BuzzFeed lists. Anybody get caught in one of those before? So the last one I read had something to do with celebrities who were short, it was like a number of celebrities you didn't think were short, but are. And um, depending on the Birkenstock, Birkenstocks I'm wearing, I'm like 5'9", five 5'9 nine, five nine and a quarter maybe. And most of my friends are taller than me, so like I was in. Algorithm for the win. Like I was in the article. And uh, so I wanted to just point out to you the following celebrities that I would be looking down upon. Okay? Uh, it felt good to know that I was taller than Lady Gaga. Uh, she comes in at a towering 5'1". Can you believe that? I mean, when I see her on the screen, not, not that I watch her all the time, but <laughs> when, I've seen her, when I've seen her before, it's like she must be a, like a, the size of a tree. Like she's just, it's her personality. Uh, de- I knew this one, but I'm definitely taller than uh, my man Prince here, 5'2". Uh, uh, for those of you who are thinking that Prince is also the little Dr. Pepper guy, that's not him. So... <laughs> Um, 
I do feel really good about this one. I'm, I'm a few inches taller than Bruno Mars. Um, Bono, 5'6". Really? See, here we go. Here we go. This is what I'm talking about. Um, I'm probably going to lose half the room on this one, but uh, Tom York from Radiohead. Anybody? Any Radiohead fans? Thank you. Kid A, what's the album? What's your album? Actually, The Benz. The Benz, that's a good one. Thank you. Kid A is good. Optimistic is a great song. It was the radio hit. Okay. Um, and this one, John Stewart. Like, I'm taller. Thank gosh, I'm taller than John Stewart. Uh, <laughs> so, to quote the great prophet, so I got that going for me, right? Um, two people got that. Thank you. But there is just something, and you know this, about a person's status and their fame that, like, it just adds this kind of perceived height to them, you know? I had known Bono was short, having seen you 2 like, live a number of times. But for me, he always just looked larger than life, like on a screen or even on stage. But the fact that he's almost a head shorter than me is just very interesting, you know? Because when you see them, your mind just automatically assumes that they just tower over the normal person. And, uh, you know, just kind of a, an interesting intro to this story, because Luke's gospel... Um, Luke's gospel is really the gospel where Jesus is not tall. Now, he's a Middle Eastern man in the first century. He probably wasn't tall anyway. But Luke makes sure that Jesus doesn't come across as this enormous person or this enormous figure. Not in feet or inches or something like that, but in closeness to normal people. Proximity is the issue. And Luke's gospel is the one where Jesus is essentially in the most trouble... Uh, for his associations with street-level sinners and wannabe saints, you know, with the rest of us. And so Luke's gospel is the one also where Jesus has the nickname that he is a friend of sinners. And so Luke takes careful aim to make sure in his writing that we see Jesus in this way. And this is precisely how our passage begins today. Notice the first thing Luke says in this uh, teaching scene of Jesus. And he came down with them and he stood on a what? A level place. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, uh, you probably recognize some of these blessed statements. They mirror uh, Matthew's version of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is all about the mountain. Everything Jesus does is high up. Jesus is kind of a Moses figure for Matthew. And so the mountain signifies this voice from God, the law coming down. But uh, in Luke's gospel, the mountain is a place of solitude and prayer, but the ground, the street level, is where Jesus is working. We have Luke, uh, Luke's telling us that Jesus is coming down and stood with the people on a level place. Not on a mountain or a hill or in a pulpit or on some live stream, but on the same level as the people standing with them and among them. And the gospel story, particularly in this gospel of Luke, it just sort of trades in uh, making the ground level for all people. That when Jesus was among people, there was no velvet rope, no cover charge. Your name didn't need to be on a list. He was someone that you could be with regardless of your level of piety or social station. And that's different because the ancient religions controlled people uh, through keeping their gods high up and out of reach with everyone else, all of us, sort of down below. And the Jesus story is a story of God uh, who walks the same streets, who eats the same foods, 
who feels the same pains and experiences the same world that we live in. One of the more complicated theological subjects is how did God become a person? No one has an adequate answer for that. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church that has like the one, two, three punch for that answer, but it's very difficult. It's called the incarnation in the inside circles. But it's one of the more complicated issues uh, in trying to figure out how did this happen, why did this happen, and what does it even mean, and trying to process how God became a human being, how God wrote himself into the human story in the person of Jesus. But there are these implications that became universal about that thought, about that idea, and one of them is this announcement that the Incarnation makes, which is simply God saying, I'll come to you. Every ancient religion and modern religion is about us sort of seeking God. I'm going to find God, find God here and there and in different places. But the Christian story is a story of God saying, I'll come to you. I'll meet you in your place, in your world, and walk with you in your life. So this level place, it's easy to just sort of fly over that. But this is a, this is a scene setter for us that Jesus is with us. There's another version of this just in verse 20. And he lifted up his what? His eyes on the disciples. Before Jesus says anything, and you know I'm bad at eye contact. I, I work really hard. I go home and throw up after church. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus, before he even says anything to uh, his people, he lifts his eyes to them. In Matthew's version of this, it's just that Jesus opens his mouth. But here comes the word. But before Jesus speaks here, he looks his disciples in the eyes. A subtle and remarkable detail that God has eye contact with us, that he sees us, that God sees you and me. God has all these different names in the Bible. Um, the list is very, very long, and almost 99% of them are names that people gave God. Something happened, they experienced something, and they named God according to that experience, whether God provides, whether God rescues, saves, etc. And the very first name that was ever given to God in the Bible uh, was the name uh, that means God, the God who sees. It's pronounced Elroy, which I think is really funny, uh, but it's a compound word, Elroy, the God who sees. And that name was given to God by a woman whose life was falling apart, but ran into the loving presence of God in her attempt to get away. And so the very first name even that we get of God is that he sees us. He sees you in me. Not in a negative way. I know that that's, I do this to my daughter all the time, you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a game we play. We see how fast we can do it. Like she does like double barrel. She's like, <laughs> she used her feet the other day too and I was out. So, <laughs> but not that kind of like I see you. I see everything that you're doing and I'm upset with you. That's not the, it's more of this. I see who you are. I see the person I love. I see you. I don't want you to feel invisible. And so just in the, before we get any teaching, Jesus is with us on a level place and he sees us before he even speaks. Now, the rest of the passage is just this teaching of Jesus. And it's a series of pronouncements. And it's evenly split between two columns. One for blessings and one for woes. I drew a chart for you. I think this will probably help. Um, is that good? Can you read it? 
So this, I always call this like when Jesus taught in columns, and this is sort of a common thing that he would do occasionally. And to the listener, it makes uh, it, it hits home. But you can see the blessing side. Uh, these are the blessings: blessed are those who are poor, or hungry, who are sad, and who feel excluded, or who are excluded, and the woes, the wealthy, the the full, those who are laughing, and those who are accepted. Um, and so you can see that each blessing and each woe has a corresponding partner. The blessings are directed at those who don't feel blessed. Now, blessed is a word we normally associate with reward, the good life. Hashtag blessed. How many people have you unfollowed when you see that on there? But blessed is something we normally associate with that. That there's... Uh, there's some sort of monetary blessing, or they're, they're successful, or that they have a lot of friends, or that there's, uh, they have great influence, or they have all the things that you don't have. That's usually how we rank it anyway. Those who have more than me are more blessed, and those who have less than me need more blessing. That's just how it works. Now, the word for blessed here is makarios, which means not anything material. It means unburdened, satisfied. Not that your life is great or that it's in its best version, but that you are a dignified person, that you've been pronounced as a dignified person. And um, do we spill coffee? It's like the old building uptown. Anybody remember that? Yes. It would just roll down the aisle. <laughs> Some random guy with a mop just in the middle of my sermon. Man. Those were the days, my friends. Those were the days. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that you have a lot of stuff or that you have more than someone else. It just means that you recognize that you have been pronounced dignified by God. To be blessed in the eyes of God and the mind of God is that you were his child. It's the grace of our station with God that we can be at peace with whatever is going on. You never feel separated, or at least like God has moved on. Now, when you look at this list, uh, when you look at this list, these pairings of blessings and woes, which column do you normally associate most with blessing? The honest answer is not the left one. Like the serving organizations that we'll work alongside next month um, on our Serve the City Sunday. They're in the business of many things, but one of those things is pronouncing blessing over people's lives. When we help the poor and the hungry, when we console the brokenhearted, when we include outcasts and love those who are hated, when we do all those things, we remind them of God's heart for them. And we are also participants in their ongoing renewal. It's a way for us, like Jesus, to see people. So what do we do with these woes? I love the Greek word for woe. It's pronounced oi. <laughs> Have you ever said that? It's probably where it comes from. You see someone in a situation and you think, oi. <laughs> you meet your friends for dinner and they walk in with some new guy and you're like, oi. <laughs> This word is a lament. It's not so much a warning, but a lament. 
And this is how it's used. It's an expression that you use of someone who has settled in to a belief that they have arrived. That they've hit life in stride. That now they're living their best life. Which, by the way, just as a pastoral statement, there's nothing more unsustainable than living your best life. (laughs) Or the best version of your life. Walk away from that. It's not sustainable. Because it's always moving and changing. But these people believe they're there. And that they're strong and fearless, invincible. And that their best life is being lived. And so Jesus gives these groans, these laments. Woe to those people. Oy. And the reason he says that is because these stations of prosperity and happiness and reputation, they're temporary. They cycle in and out of our lives. Everybody in this room knows that. And when it's all going our way, we're more, we're more prone to feel blessed. And so what Jesus laments here is that these places of goodness and comfort, and this is where it becomes kind of a warning, that those places can crack. And they will crack. We saw it most recently in the government shutdown. How quickly people fell from living a decent life to struggling to pay the bills and in some rare cases even to survive. But you know this. Like you know this as people who live and breathe and work. You've been through this before. Some, uh, something in your life uh, that was a place of confidence and strength, it cracked. Has that ever happened to you? Of course. Of course it has. A relationship that was strong, it cracked. Family, your career, I mean, having been here now almost 12 years, just walking through career changes, some by choice, some not by choice, with some of you, is, it's, it's just, it's a testimony to the truth of this. Your health, you know, we joke, us, us Gen Xers in the room, we joke about how our eyes are getting bad and we can't see and you just wake up in pain now. It's just, you know, it's fun. But we're Gen Xers, so we're like, hey, whatever, you know. Uh, wow, that didn't work, did it? Okay. <laughs> so, who cares? Um, but you understand that. I mean, you understand that life is fragile. The money, um, money was good, then it wasn't good, and then there was stress, and then there was fighting, and then there was, I mean, these things, they crack. So Jesus isn't saying those who have money are terrible people. He's saying, I lament for you because you feel as though you're solid. And it's okay to be in those situations because sometimes we do well in certain parts of our life. Sometimes things go really well. Sometimes we have the food we need. We have the friends we need. We're experiencing a life of joy. But the lament here is that we would think that that would always be and so he, he gives this warning, this lament, that we will fall. And sometimes if we don't plan for that, if we don't understand that that will happen, it, it's a hard landing. And when we land, we feel often unseen, unblessed. And so maybe that is your story right now, that somewhere, you're somewhere between the blessings and the woes. Again, money was good, but now it's getting tight. 
and you're worried. The sense of fullness that you had for life is slipping and there's a growing hunger in you. Or joy and happiness are weakening again and sadness is uh, and weeping are coming into view. Longtime friends are pulling back from you for some reason. And that fear of being isolated again is real. And so maybe you sit between those two and you understand this. But the redemption in this teaching is in the pairings. Whenever you fall from one of those woes, you fall into a blessing. What Jesus wants you to remember is when you find yourself in these places of poverty and hunger and sadness and so on, that you are not unblessed, that God still sees you, that you are his child. Amen? So when we fall, we don't fall from grace, but we fall into a grace. Wherever you land, you remain a blessed child of God. I think that's what Christ wants us to hear in this teaching.